Well, top of the morning to you. Yeah, that too, yes. Okay, there's a couple of things. There are two commercials, bear with me. This is the Cornerstone Magazine. Have you in the past ever read the Uplook Magazine? Anybody know? Before that, it was Interest Magazine, okay? This is the new version, but it's by a, a different committee, and Dave Dunlap is the editor, and it rotates through Mark Colchin and Brian Gunning. In this particular one, which I'll leave these on the back, um, they have various news items that would be helpful to you, but in particular, you'll want to notice the little um, uh, thing here called the Glory of the Cross, which is the uh, Believer's Bible Conference, used to be known as the Rise Up Conference, as I understand it. There appears to be several young people that are going from this assembly alone. Now, I have casually mentioned to the folks in Texas that the guys in California can outdo them in terms of populating the conference. <laughs> Turns out the guys in Texas are a little competitive. So I said the guys in California are up for it. So don't worry about it. You'll do fine. And, uh, but but the, it's, it's quite nice with different articles. It is... Uh, uh, one that uh, uh, they would love for you to sign up for. And uh, I don't, this is not because I have an article in here, but there's some really good articles. And one of them is this one, why I like the midweek prayer meeting. Now, I wish I would have wrote that because I love the week prayer, week, midweek prayer meeting. So, so you might uh, get a hold of that with the elder's permission. I'll, I'll leave those out for you. All right, that's it. Those are the two commercials in one. So let's pray. Our Father, we come to you this morning in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we, we have to uh, bow our hearts before you and ask for the grace that comes through the Spirit of God to enlighten us to the Word of God. I pray each heart that has the need of the hour, that you know what it is and that we don't, that you would meet that need, just like the Spirit of God does. He's excellent as a counselor. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. The title of today's message is Don't Be Afraid. It wasn't too long ago we had a thunderstorm in our house. And uh, we still, although uh, we have grandchildren, we actually still have a six-year-old who is our child. So it's a difficult thing because obviously we feel like grandparents, but we have a six-year-old that think we're 20. And so, and, and so she, she's active and busy and... and, um, and and the thunderstorm came at night, of course, and um, she wanted to sleep on our little, we have a little love seat in our bedroom, and so she gets on there, and, and of course, it's right by the window, and you know when there's a thunderstorm, the lightning just lights up the whole room, even though we have the blinds pulled, lights up the whole room, and then crack, that sound of the thunder happens. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. Huh? No, no. And uh, that, that, that just terrifies her to no end. And within, I'd say, perhaps seconds, she is crawling uh, on top of us and saying, can I sleep between you two? You know. Now, we are the age of grandparents, and we go, sure. Yeah. And so she cuddled up. And you know, the louder the thunder got, the, the brighter the lightning became, the more she burled her head in the pillow and the small of our backs and got up like a little, little, like a cocoon and was just wanting us to protect her from, from all the noise, from all the lightning. Don't be afraid. That's what I told her. Don't be afraid. Mommy's here. 
Daddy's here. We'll protect you. And no matter how much we said that, she was still afraid. Turns out in the word of God, the phrase, don't be afraid, is in every portion of God's word, whether it be Old Testament or New Testament. In fact, when I began to look at this and, and study the life of Christ, he's telling his disciples all the time, now don't be afraid. I got the idea they're like scaredy cats, right? And yet when I looked in the Old Testament, they had so many times he said, now don't be afraid. And what I'd like to do today in our next three hours is, is just to look at a few of these and, and draw some parallels and each section has a particular angle that produces the fear. For example, turn to Genesis chapter 15. I've titled this subsection, When the Future Passes You By, Don't Be Afraid. Right? When the future passes you by. So we're going to read this one verse and then I'll explain it because it turns out that I'm a very poor time manager as the guys yesterday will tell you as... Um, we went a little long, didn't we, gentlemen? Yes. I'm sorry, wives. Please forgive me. It was definitely Justin's fault. All right, here we go. Verse 1, chapter 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, don't be afraid. It's right there. It says it. Don't be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. You're exceeding exceedingly great reward. Now, why did he say on his really second appearance where there was communication, why did he say to Abram, don't be afraid? I mean, the text gives you a little hint after these things. So you have to ask yourself, as any Bible student would do, well, what were these things that were causing such fear? Well, there's two of them. I'll describe them to you for the sake of time. The first one was with Abram and Lot, and they had to separate away from, um, from uh, the Philistines, Ahimelech, or is it Abimelech, one of those two. They separated away, and what had happened was um, uh, it became evident that the herdsmen of Abram and the herdsmen of Lot were also having some difficulty managing the extensive livestock operations. And so what Abram did, which was quite astounding because he obviously is the older, he says to the younger nephew, Lot, you pick first. Now, what did Lot do? It says in the text, and he looked over and found the best of the land. Now, that's odd, isn't it? Usually the older who has seniority and also especially in that type of culture would never go last. He purposely goes last. Now it's very much like the Lord Jesus who although being in the form of God took the form of a servant. You see, it's very reflective of that. But nonetheless, Abram chooses the best, which means what? Ab uh, uh, Lot chooses the best, which means Abram was left with the rocks and the stones. And if you've ever been to Judea, you've got one thing that's very common, rocks and stones. In fact, you go out and you want to see where the sheep graze, and you know what they graze on? Rocks and stones. Go to the hillside of Bethlehem. It's rocky. What do they have as, as uh, a stables? It's a cave and dirt. And many of us crawled through those little passageways. Lord willing, we'll do that again in February. 
But here's the point. His opportunity passed him by. Lot took the best of the land. Turns out the best of the land also was inhabited by those who lived in Sodom and Gomorrah. The Lord wasn't necessarily happy with Sodom and Gomorrah. And so he made a decision, obviously, that was based upon the immediate tangibility, the, the immediate uh, gratification, the wealth of the moment, not on the spiritual issues at hand. Now, what is the second thing that happened when the future passes you by? Well, that actually is in chapter 14. Again, it's an extensive story, I must explain. So, in chapter 14, you had four kings from the Mesopotamian region. So, that would be the Tigris and Euphrates River, Iraq, Iran, right? And they had come all this distance. It's called through the Crescent Moon region because it sort of arches over the Arabian Desert. And then you come south through Syria, current day Syria, in fact, and through Damascus, an ancient city. And you would attack. And what did they attack? They attacked all the fertile valley region, unlike today, because it was predating the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. But it was the, in that time, it was apparently quite fertile. By the way, in prophetical literature in the Bible, that will actually return to its, its lushness in the future coming day of the Lord Jesus, it says in the prophetical books. Very neat to see how God reestablishes things. That's another story for another time. And so these four kings, they come down to the Rift Valley or where that, the Jordan River flows and, uh, and they attack. Now, why would they attack? Because it was fertile, it was rich, it was wealthy. And they overtook five kings and they did a loop around the, the southern uh, portion of Israel and they went of Canaan and they went all the way up north along the central ridge spine of the country and passing through such cities as Salem, you would know it as Jerusalem, such cities as Ramah, such cities as all the way up to Damascus. Now Abram hears about this and he's not so much concerned about the wealth as he is the person, the family, because Lot was taken captive. And as you recall the story, he took 318 of his best chosen men in his entire household, which means he puts his entire uh, economical base at risk. And he goes up and he fights four kings with 318 men in a night assault, and he wins. He then takes everybody back home, that is, the kings that had been conquered, the captives, and all the people and all the goods, and as they go south, they pass a place called Salem. Jerusalem, and in that city lived another man who feared God, and his name was Melchizedek, both the priest of God and what else? King of Salem. Very typical of the titles of the Lord Jesus. And what, uh, what, uh, what Melchizedek does, King Melchizedek, priest Melchizedek does, is he comes out and he says, in the, in the, just at the end of the previous chapter, he says to, the, says to Abram, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. And so he reminds Abram of really of the, of the, of the promises that God had given before, that God is the one who, who is the, the, the ultimate sovereign authority. This is in Genesis chapter 14, verse 18, 19 and 20. And then he reminds him that it was God who gave him the victory. Now, that was important because right after that, the king of Sodom has a business transaction, an offer. And it says in the next verse that he said, now, listen, Abram, why don't you give me the people and, I'll t and you can have all the possessions? 
well, boy, that sounds like a wonderful deal, right? That sounds like a ready-made method to see the promise of God fulfilled. And it was so tempting, wasn't it? Now, Abram quotes Melchizedek. I love this part. And he says, and you can read it in chapter 14. It's just a few verses before. And Abram said in verse 22 to the king of Sodom, I've raised my hand. What does that mean, I've raised my hand? Oh, I've got a question. No, he took an oath. I took an oath, you see. I've taken an oath. In other words, I've, I've sealed the deal, King Sodom. And the, the deal that I have sealed is with God, not with you. And what I've decided to do is that I will take nothing from you. Why is that? Because it was stated earlier in the book of Genesis that the, 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 king, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities of the plain were an abomination to them. They were obnoxious to God in their practices and their sin. So Abram knew that that was an unacceptable unacceptable to, to, to take such wealth from those who would displease God. He was going to let his future pass him by. He took an oath to that degree. And he says the following, that he says, I've raised my hand to the Lord God most high. Again, that's the quote of Melchizedek, possessor of heaven and earth. He's quoting the word he received. God in the person, or God through the mouth of Melchizedek communicates to Abram the right word at the right time to deal with the right temptation or the wrong temptation, and Abram responds in the right way. He passes it by. Doesn't take anything. Now, we get to chapter 15. Abram goes, uh, uh, or the Lord God meets with Abram, and he says, don't be afraid. Abram would have been afraid. He two separate occasions, and almost three because he spent some time in Egypt and that didn't go too well. And then he, he had this opportunity to have the best of the land. He gave the choice over to his nephew who stole the, or took the best of the land. And now he rescues his neighbor, uh, his, his family lot, and the, his neighbor offers him a deal that's sweeter than honey, and, and he says, no, thank you. You see, sometimes in life we fear because we think the future has passed you by, and God meets with you, and God says, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. Not because you're trying to psychologically convince yourself of, of the fact that something good's going to happen, that actually is a promise, so it's not really psychological, but notice the common factor here, I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. Don't be afraid. Many of us in our lives have passed up several things, right? Did you know I was offered to be the chief medical officer of a company last week? That would be a big position. In the world of my medicine, that would be top of the food chain. And I said, no, thank you. Why did I do that? Because God called us to serve him with everything that we possibly can have. And for a brief moment, in the silence of my airplane trip home, I was afraid the future was passing me by. Funny thing, when you're on an airplane at 30,000 feet, somehow you just feel like God speaks more clearly right out of Genesis 15, right? 
Some of you are at that precipice of life, right? And you're at this threshold where, where oh, listen, you're a star here, and you're going to do this, and all you got to do is this, and you work for this, and you'll be our up-and-coming rising product, and you'll be able to be the CEO and all that kind of stuff. And I want you to know, if God has that for you, well, then obey him. But if, but if you're trading clear direction from the Lord for this, you can afford to let it pass you by. Don't be afraid. All right, let's look at another one. And what we're going to do is we're going to just try to to cover some of these. I I think they're helpful for us today. And our Christian pilgrimage, that's what we're called, pilgrims. We don't come with the hats, you know, know, the American hats of pilgrim. Maybe you didn't study that. Okay, anyway, we don't have that. But we have the fear factor. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 32. I've titled this one, When the Past Catches Up to You. Anybody have those problems? You know, there's not a Christian who's been saved for some time in which they come to me and says, oh, my goodness, there's so many things I regret. Well, I say that with you. So many things I regret. There is one thing I regret that is really kind of a good thing. Are you ready? I regret not marrying my wife at a younger age. I'd have more time with her. But it was illegal, so anyway, I couldn't do that. I'm going to pay for that, won't I, honey, on the way home, I'm sure. Okay, sorry. All right, back to Genesis 32. Now, Genesis 32 is, is an extraordinary chapter. It's where you, inter- you are introduced, perhaps for the first time ever, that God, are you ready, is a wrestling God. I would say he would have won the Olympic event in Greco-Roman wrestling. And you get this idea from this passage, but I can't imagine, I don't usually, I don't, when I read about the Lord Jesus in the New Testament, I have trouble thinking that he sprawled around on the sand with the boys. You know, I don't think that way. But when Jacob was traversing the globe, God in pre-incarnate form wrestled. It turns out he wrestled all night. It must have been pretty good. Now, The reason why this is significant is because of the circumstances. Remember Jacob's history. Oh, what a man. We would say this way, he's a piece of work. That is not a compliment. That means you're a nasty dude, right? Now, what had happened was it started out where even at birth, he was sort of tripping up his brother when he grabbed his heel. That's on record for us. And then we, tra- we, we get translated to a future event when they're both grown men, and, and obviously Esau's having trouble with the hunting of the day. Now, I'm not a hunter. I, I think Davy Dixon wants to make me a hunter. But, but it was a bad hunting day, okay? It happens. It's like you don't catch fish this time. I don't know what it was. But he goes and he sees his brother who's making, I'm sure it was a fine pot of lentil stew. I'm sure it was. But I am actually not a bean kind of guy. If I have to, I'll eat it, right? But and he goes, oh, give me some of your stew because I'm going to die. And obviously, he trades a spiritual blessing for a a, a finite moment of physical satisfaction, which really becomes the motif of his life. And Hebrews even talks about that. It even talks about how Esau represents, it uses a strong word, fornicator. Somebody wants to gratify the flesh all the time. Move along. And we get to the point where the boys are older and and, uh, and uh, Isaac says, hey, I'm gonna, I want to give you the, the blessing of the family. I want to give you the blessing. And Mrs. Isaac, that would be Rebecca, what a family, dysfunctional at its finest, 
says, oh, 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 that's not going to do. And so she gets Jacob and says, hey, do what I tell you. We're going to go lie to dad. I can't imagine that. And, and Jacob is he's just cold as ice in the lie. And he does everything mom says. And when dad says, is it really you? He says, yes, it's Esau. That's like the epitome of lousy family relationships. And then and he goes like this. How did you get the game so fast? The Lord helped me do it. How come God gets blamed for everything when we're doing wrong, huh? That's what's going down. And it goes on, and he goes, eventually has to flee and goes to meet Uncle Laban. He's a bigger crook, right? And he cheats him, and he gives him Leah, and then he gets, gets, swindles him out of 14 years of his life, works another seven or so years of his life. And, and finally, God has to push him out and says, it's time for you to go and run, my son. And so he gets on his, his trail, and he moves his entire family, and they come to a place called Jabuk. Sounds like a Star Wars character, doesn't it? It's not. It's actually a place in the Bible. And if you were to go with us to Israel, we'd actually, we can't go there. It's on the Jordan side, but we, we would come close. There's the river Yarmuk and the river Jabuk. And Jabuk comes into the river Jordan about the uh, latitude of um, Gilgal, where Joshua had his famous thing, though. Anyway, so at Jabuk, there's two city, there's two towns, villages, Manahim and Penuel, I believe. And, and he stops there. Now, he is afraid of Esau because 20 years ago, Esau wanted to kill him. That's why he left the homeland, went to see Uncle Laban, you see. So let's read a little bit. Genesis chapter 32, and he says in verse 3, Then Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, that's Edom, the country of Edom, and he commanded them, saying, Speak thus to my lord Esau, Thus your servant Jacob, boy, I tell you, that's not the language and the tone of the previous two encounters. Jacob was the Lord and Esau was the servant. Jacob was happy about that. Now Jacob, very humble man here because he's afraid for his life, uses the, the terminology that is reflected in the text. I have dwelt with Laban and stayed there until now, and I have oxen and donkeys and flocks and male and female servants, and I have sent to tell my Lord that I might find favor in your sight. Translated means, so you don't kill me. Then the messengers returned to Jacob saying, oh, we came to your brother Esau, and he is also coming to meet you. Isn't that fantastic? Yeah, that's great. And he has 400 men. <laughs> what do you do with 400 men? It's not to say hello. It's probably to say goodbye, okay? You don't need 400 men to go say hello. And I think Jacob got the message loud and clear. And verse 7, and Jacob was greatly afraid when your past catches up with you. Now I'll have to tell you a measure of the rest of the story, and then I'll read a couple of key verses. So those who were in my class yesterday, this is what you do when you don't have time to read the whole text. You explain it. And then you read the key verses. Remember that because you'll have to do that in our class in the future. Just saying, Robert. Okay, now, 
Where were we? Oh, yeah. And so what he does is he prepares to send gifts to Esau to sort of tone down the temper. And so he, he begins by sending uh, a rows of animals and ver various kinds of animals. And, and, and then he sets the families in order. Of course, the least favorite in the front and Rachel's in the back. What a dysfunctional family. And so they go and they cross over the river or the brook Jabuk. And he keeps sending him. He's hoping he'll wear out his emotional anger and tone it down so they won't kill him when he sees him. Now, Jacob, of course, where is he? In the back. That's where all of us stay when the past catches, us, catches up to us. And, he and here's the text now. He stays that night and he was left alone on, uh, on one side of the river Jabuk, right? And while he's there, it says a man wrestles with him. When the past catches up with you, it's like the man you're meeting, a you're engaging in a wrestling match. And this time, and the text will say that the man was sort of like the uh, pre-incarnate representation of Christ. I believe that's true. Look at it in verse 24. Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. This guy was good. Now, when he saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, so the man who was wrestling was looking like he was going to get beat, he touched the socket of his hip. And the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, let me go. That's the, the man, the unidentified man. Let me go for the day breaks. But he, that's Jacob, says, I will not let you go. I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. I want a blessing. You hear that? And so he said to him, what is your name? My name is Swindler. That's who I am. Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. What's Israel mean? Prince of God. Prince of God. For you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Now, when the past catches up with you, this is a prime time for you and God to wrestle. And believe me. God knows how to wrestle. I have competed with him on many occasions, usually by the woodshed of life, and I can tell you he knows how to wrestle. And what we do is we kind of wrestle with God, and we're sweaty, and we're slippery, and we're slimy, and we're going, and he's going toe-to-toe, -to -toe, and finally you think you have God right where you think you can hold him, and you're going to get whatever you want, and all God has to do is reach his hand out and go, and that little thing that was holding your body together suddenly shrivels up, as it seems to indicate, and now you're all out of joint. And what is God after? What, to, to, what, is, he, what is he looking for when the past catches up with you? He's looking for something that is so hard, so desperately difficult to do, and it's to confess what we really are. My name is Swindler. That's when God can change you, and he gives you a new name, Prince of God. Over the last 20 years, I have witnessed a huge number of men and women, but mostly men, who've walked away. Now, these are not men in their 20s. They're men in their 40s and 50s. 
And as I, I chatted with them and heard their stories, the one common denominator that I observed was a wrestling match with God. You see, some of them had been saved for 10, 20, 30 years. And for whatever reason, they come to a point in their life where, where it's like they're struggling and wrestling. And, and, and finally, God gets them to the point where he says, now I can talk with you. And, and you want me to bless you? Yes, I want you to bless me. Then, then you're going to have to do something. You're going to have to tell me your name. Those men will get to the point and they'll look as it were a mirror in their faces, maybe in the faces of their family, maybe in the faces of their spouses or in the faces of their children or in the faces of their lives, and, and what they see is not beautiful at all. It, it's, it's as if you've never changed. And they do not want to say, boy, I really... I'm really not as good a Christian as I thought I was, am I? I call that the Christian midlife crisis. It's not fixed by a Harley. It's fixed by confession. That is so hard, isn't it? I've seen so many men in their 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s walk away because God got them to the point where they were wrestling and finally they actually could see the picture of who they were and they go, ah, you must be wrong. And they would never, they would never say their name. The wrestling match was a waste. When the past catches up with you, it produces fear. Not because of what the past can do to you, but because what the past says about you. Can I give you my personal testimony? There was a nurse at my hospital who, when I was um, a mere fledgling doctor, used to work in the emergency department. This lady was tall, big, and loud. And she had big hair, at least three inches on top, four maybe. Big laugh talk loud. I know you think I'm like that, but I don't really like that. She moved on, went to nurse practitioner school, came back. Now I'm director of the department, which means I can make the decisions. And she calls me up and she says, Dr. Price, I was wondering if I could do a rotation with you to finish my nurse practitioner training. I go, oh. Okay. So she comes and rotates with me, and so we're seeing patients, boom, 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 you know. And you didn't know me then, but I was really business. Janet will tell you, I was business. Boom, boom, boom. And so after about three weeks, she, we could leave a patient's room, and she says, Dr. Price? I said, yes. She said, you haven't changed a bit. <laughs> Those words haunt me. I'm supposed to have changed a bit. And all of a sudden... I could see my flesh like it had never died in the mirror of my life. Well, I tell you, when the past catches up with you, it's not, the past isn't what scares you. It's what it says about you that scares you. And that's when the wrestling matches are happening. And that's when the God of the universe will say to you, listen, I need you just to say, just to see one thing, my child. 
that I'll wrestle with you as long as it takes. It takes all night, I'll wrestle with you. But at the end of the day, I've got you right where I want you. I can just touch you and you'll be crippled for life. And let me tell you something. All I really need you to do is say, yes, Lord. Oh, yes, Lord. I don't, I, I need your mercy again. Oh, God. Change me. Are you there? Are you there? Too many men shut down. Too many men walk away. Too many lives are shattered because they didn't want to face the obvious. And I'm watching it happen left and right. I've got their names on my list to pray. I see their faces in my mind and in my heart. Oh, we cannot be those kind of casualties anymore. When the past catches up with you, don't be afraid. We only have five more to go. It's terrible, isn't it? The speaker can taunt you with this. I may go longer, I may not. <laughs> Second Chronicles chapter 20. Second Chronicles chapter 20. It's a sick abuse of power, I agree. <laughs> All right, Second Chronicles chapter 20 is during the reign of Jehoshaphat. I always wanted to name one of our sons Jehoshaphat. Fortunately, I married a very, very wise woman, and she said in a polite way, no way, Jose. And so uh, we never named our, one of our sons Jehoshaphat. He couldn't spell it in grade school anyway. Now, Jehoshaphat was a, a fairly godly king, quite honestly. He was in the south and over the, the, the tribe of Judah. And um, during his tenure, he had an army that was going to come across uh, basically the Dead Sea. If you've done some geography study of the biblical lands, the Dead Sea actually had, used to have an isthmus, you know, one of those land passageways across halfway. If you've ever seen that, and, and the Dead Sea today is actually going down at a somewhat rapid rate, and I think we're going to see an isthmus again. But nonetheless, they, the army could cross the Dead Sea, and it was the army of Moab and a few others, like the Ammonites are on that side. A- Ammonites would be Ammon, like Jordan, that region, right? And so they would come across, and, and Seir, which is south, and the Edomites, and they were going to come across right at the place where that isthmus was. It was by Engedi. Now, Engedi is one of the few, if not, yeah, one of the few oases. Oasis. What is that plural? Oasis. I don't know. Oasises. And Engedi is a is a beautiful spot. It's it's been there forever. J- David used to hide out there when Saul was looking for him in the caves of Engedi. And today you go there, the beautiful waterfalls we like to get in, young people like to go swimming, I like to watch them swim, it's very nice. And, uh, and so this army was coming across to go up the Engedi region, and, and it turns into a little ridge called the uh, uh, Ascent of Ziz. It's right, right there, you can see it on the map. And, and they were going to then go into the central, uh, central ridge of the, of, the, of the land of Israel, and then Jerusalem is just a few miles away. So it was their attack plan. And here's how it goes down. Verse 3, and Jehoshaphat feared. Why did he fear? Well, oh, I'm sorry, I should have read verse 1. And it happened after that that the people of Moab and the people of Ammon and others besides the Ammonites came to battle against Jehoshaphat. And some came and told Jehoshaphat, saying, a great multitude is coming against you beyond the sea from Syria. So it went all the way up north, all the way down south, and they are in Hazazam Tamar, which is in Gedi. So that was that little oasis part. They were kind of coming across the Dead Sea. And Jehoshaphat feared. Why did he fear? He feared when problems attack you. 
Now, what he did next is he goes and he stands in the assembly in verse 5, assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord. So he's in the temple, right, built by Solomon, before the new court, and he prays. It's a beautiful prayer. Uh, my discipleship men, that's, what, that's going to be one of your assignments to look at that prayer. It's a beautiful prayer, right? And he, and he asks God basically for help. I can't read it for, with you today because their time is limited. And, and, and God speaks through the prophet. It, it pick up the action in verse 14. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaniah, Benaniah, I can't pronounce it, Benaniah, the son of Jeiel, the son of Mataniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph in the midst of the assembly. All right, so they're standing around in the court of the Lord, by the, right by the temple, and one of the, one of the men there is, actually has a word from the Lord. The Spirit of God came upon him in this way, and he said, Listen, all you, Jude, all you of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and you, King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, Do not be afraid, nor dismayed because of the great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow go down against them, and they will surely come up by the ascent of Ziz. And you will find them at the end of the brook before the wilderness of Jeriel. And you will not need to fight in this battle. Don't you love that? Put your armor on, but you're not going to need it. Position yourselves, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord. The reason why you don't have to be afraid is because I will fight for you, right? Do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, for the Lord is with you. Now, this is how much Jehoshaphat believed this. He bowed down, and the battle came, and what happened? He sent the singers out in the front of the battle line, defenseless musicians, defenseless vocalists. And as they sang, look at verse 22. Now when they began to sing and to praise the Lord, uh, praise, the Lord set ambushes against the people of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, Edom, who had come against Judah, and they were defeated. That's beautiful. And when we go to Israel next February, we're going to try to look at that spot. I've always wanted to. Right? Now, here's the point. We, we fear when problems attack you. Now, Jehoshaphat was a pretty godly man. There was not much in his life as in his tenure as king. He did some things which we have, we have questions about. But generally speaking, he was a fairly godly man. And this kind of battle seems to be somewhat out of the blue. And many of our lives are just like that. We're trying to do the right thing. We're trying to, to be honest and have integrity and, and polite as if we are expressing the things of the heart of Christ to the world around us. And guess what? You get attacked. You just get attacked. And you hear about the mar army coming against you. And what do you do? Well, there's a couple of responses. You can fail, as I've done in the past, and defend yourself. You can whine about it. You can blame God, or you can do the thing that Jehoshaphat did, and he went to the Lord himself, and he had a meeting with the Lord at the temple of God. I have news for you. You are the temple of God. And then God meets him, and he, and he pours out his heart, and he says, can this happen? Will you not defend us? And the Lord says, absolutely, I'll defend you. I'll defend you in such a way that you won't even shoot an arrow, throw a spear, or wield a sword. You can just sing your hearts out. 
And that's what he did. Now, why is that? Why did he tell them not to fear? Because the Lord is with you. Gracie, don't fear the storm. Don't fear the lightning. Don't fear the thunder. Daddy's here. It wasn't very comforting. What mama said, it was comfort, not dad. But the same idea in all these three scenarios thus far in our short little mini-series, we find that the presence of God was there every time. And when you're facing these problems that you're just attacking, health issues, I've heard about them, family issues, I know about them, personal struggles at the business place, I've experienced them. And when those problems come and they're just like ambushes upon your soul, I want you to hear the word of the Lord. The Lord is with you. Don't be afraid. It's not because you're wise and you know how to handle a problem. Most of you do. It's not because you, you have a, a, a certain in with another official that will undo this problem that someone's bringing against you. Many do. But you are going to stand still in this time. Without the fingerprints of your own hands involved in the remedy, you're going to watch God fight your fight. Our time is gone, so I, uh, I'm going to close. Unless you don't want me to. Okay. <laughs> I heard my wife laugh. That's too bad because we really have... Anyway... I was in my second year of medical practice, and I was given a lawsuit. Lawsuits in medicine are vicious. I'm sure they're vicious in other things. I don't know about any other thing except medicine, and this, this lawsuit was vicious. It's about 150 pages. First of all, who writes something that long? And you begin to read it, and it... And it, it you know, in this language which is uninterpretable except these parts. And Dr. Price is dumber than a brick and should not practice medicine on the dead dogs of the world. That's a loose translation, but it was clear. <laughs> I dreamed about that lawsuit. I had that lawsuit with me, and I, I, I thought about it every moment of every waking day. I... Uh, I attended a conference in Kansas City. It was uh, put on by emergency room doctors on how to avoid litigation. I thought it'd probably be good for me to go. They featured attorneys who sued physicians and that kind of graded against me, but I thought I should go. I get in, I slip in the back, I sit down on the back seat feeling like everybody knows about my lawsuit. And the, 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 the plenary guest speaker was the guy suing me. Outside of the fact that I didn't have a gun at the time, but I wanted one. <laughs> After he presented, it was quite arrogant, his approach, and said, and that's how I never lose. I said, oh, Lord, we're so dead. And I dragged my little tail back home. I went into the house, I shut the door, I took that lawsuit, 150 pages, I set them out all on the bed in my bedroom. And I said, can you read? Do you see what's being said? 
you're going to have to save me. I can't save myself. I'll never forget that. My, I met with my attorney that shortly thereafter, and he said to me, Dr. Price, you think that you can go into that courtroom or deposition and tell them how they made a mistake in their medical judgment, and they'll back off. I said, yeah. It's not about that, Dr. Price. They want to win. And they will take their inf your information and use it against you. So you have to do something you don't want to do. I said, what's that? Listen to your attorney. Oh. Turns out I had a lot of trouble with listening back then. And what I saw was God work. I was Jehoshaphat. And I began to be convicted about my attitude towards this attorney. You know, I dream about him coming in my ER with a broken femur and I would actually lose the morphine <laughs> and pull on it to make it straight. I had all those kind of relatively gratifying horror uh, dreams. And the Lord said, you know, why don't you stand still and watch me fight for you? Now, he may not do that for you in your situation. I'm just telling you my testimony. I went to my first conference ever. It was in Fargo, North Dakota. Didn't know they had conferences in Fargo, North Dakota, did you? It was at an assembly. There was 300 people there, 250, 300 people. I was with Steve Holsheiser. It's like preaching with Jeremiah. And I incorporated the story into the message. One of the brothers there came up to me. Everybody comes up to you at a conference, and they go, hey, how you doing? And they say something to you, and you don't really remember it. That's, I'm sorry, but that's the truth. But I remember this one. He said, I pity the man who wants to fight the Lord's anointed. I went, okay, I have no idea what you meant, but yeah, thank you. I learned what he meant. A month later, I get this letter from my attorney that said this. The case has been dropped without prejudice. I told you I'd get you off, Dr. Price. I went back to my bedroom. I took that letter, and I put it on top of the lawsuit, closed the door. And I said, Lord, that man has no idea what he's talking about. You fought my fight. Wouldn't hear something even amazing, more amazing than that? I never opened my mouth to give a deposition. I never did the first step. What do you fear today? You fear when the future passes you by? Do you fear when the past comes to haunt you and it means a wrestling match of all eternity? Or do you fear when problems attack you? You didn't ask for them. You didn't want them. They just showed up. I don't care what you fear. But the enemy loves to use fear, the fear of man, against you. That's why the proverb says it's a snare. And what does that mean? It's not like something that catches you like a little thorn bush. It's a thing that's supposed to crush your ankle so you are maimed. That's what that is. And he's saying the enemy will use that against you, O child of God, so that you become immobilized and paralyzed. And I want you to know, I tell you, based on the word of God, that the common denominator to alleviate fear 
is the person of Jesus Christ. What are you fearing today? Don't be afraid. I am with you. My name, Jesus. Father, we want to thank you for this day, and we want to thank you for this casual look into the Word of God, and yet it's not so casual, is it? Lord, there's so many things that strike fear into the heart of your people. The enemy can, can win over entire armies of, of, of the people of God because we fear something that doesn't exist. Well, this time we turn and we say, Father, there's been a lot of problems in our history. There's been a lot of issues, but no longer do we fear the past. We, we glory in the Lord Jesus of the present. We just ask you to fix us. Help us to face uh, what we see in the mirror of God's word. Help us to, to, to face that, that trusting in the heavenly city is a much, much more reliable affection. No, and help us, we pray, when the problems come upon us without any warning, without any, without any um, uh, uh, type of, uh, of announcement, and we're just totally undone. And what can we do? We have no, we're in the corner. Oh, God, we trust you. And some here today with health problems and, and family problems, and we just trust you. We can't fix it. It's too complicated. It's too messy. We just trust you, Lord. I have a feeling that that's exactly what you wanted the whole time. In Jesus' name we pray.